Chapter 6 Like mourners attending a deathbed vigil, the vessels of the many branches of the Imperium hovered in waiting above the doomed world. Like greedy heirs apparent, gathering in anticipation of its imminent death, they plundered the world of its choicest riches while it yet lived. Bulky troop transports took aboard the fighting men of two full Imperial Guard regiments, together with their vehicles and equipment. Garrisoned on Bellatis, these troops would be spared the same fate as the rest of the planet's population, although their evacuation had probably only postponed their destruction rather than averted it. A sector-wide war against the forces of the Despoiler was consuming guard regiments at a truly ferocious rate. And even now, some Imperial Guard War Marshal or Departmento Munitorum official was assigning these two regiments to one of the dozens of planetary war zones spread throughout the Gothic sector. A seemingly unending series of freighter transports had arrived and departed in the last few weeks, each of them carrying off whatever part they could of Bilatus's abundant industrial or mineral resources. Tanker vessels had taken aboard hundreds of thousands of tonnes of processed Prometheum from the planet's many fuel refineries, all of it laboriously hauled up into orbit by a fleet of grimy haulage shuttles. Cargo transports filled their cavernous holds with similar quantities of mined adamantium, ferro-titanium, tricali crystal, and other materials vital for the Imperium war effort. A week ago, a massive and ancient transporter vessel belonging to the Adeptus Mechanicus had arrived in Bellatus' orbit, dispatched by the tech priests of Mars to rescue not only their brethren from the condemned world, but also the technology and arcane devices held sacred by the servants of the machine god. For days now, their agile lifter shuttles had been flitting back and forth between the vessel and the planet's surface, carrying back not merely the products of Bellatus's tech-priest-maintained industrial factories, but also some of those very factories themselves, disassembled by armies of servitor work drones. These factories and assembly lines, churning out weapons and war machines for the Imperium's armies, incorporated precious and irreplaceable technological knowledge held sacred by the members of the Adeptus Mechanicus. The rescued knowledge, inherent in these auto-maintained factories, once reassembled and transplanted to the soil of a Mechanicus forge world, would once again be used in the service of the Machine God. Not all branches of the Imperium operated on such a massive scale as the Adeptus Mechanicus, nor were their motivations for participating in the evacuation of Bellatus so easy to speculate on. Three days ago, a sleek, black-hulled corvette vessel had arrived to join the Imperium flotilla. Although obviously a vessel of the Imperium, identifying itself as the Bernardo Gui, and broadcasting approved Imperial ship recognition codes, the craft was of a design unfamiliar to most Navy eyes, and officers crowded the Macarius's command deck viewing bays to watch as it glided into Bellatus' orbit. Inquisition, they whispered in fearful tones amongst themselves, afraid even to say aloud the name of the most secret and powerful arm of the Imperium Authority. The Bernardo Gui had remained in orbit, blanketed in radio silence and unresponsive to hails from other vessels, Save for the three occasions when it had sent a single shuttle down to the planet's surface, each time 
demanding and receiving an escort of fighters from the Macarius' attack craft squadrons to accompany the shuttle on its journey to the surface and back. Each time the shuttle had returned to the parent ship after only a few hours. What it had done in that time, who or what it had picked up, or even delivered to the surface, to the doomed world, was a matter of much private, whispered conjecture amongst the crew of the Macarius. On two occasions, after such planetary expeditions, the Inquisition craft had sent terse, firmly worded commands to several of the Navy vessels, protecting the evacuation flotilla, that they were to carry out an immediate and intense orbital bombardment of two precise points on the planet's surface, one of which was a small but densely populated city in the southern part of Bellatus's largest continent. Whatever the Inquisition had been doing on Bellatus, it clearly wanted no trace of itself left behind for the enemy to find. Two days ago, another, different Imperial vessel had arrived to join the growing armada. Looking through the command deck's port viewing bay, Hito Ulante could see it now, circling in watchful high orbit above Bellatus. It was the inviolable retribution, a Punisher-class Arbite strike cruiser, constructed in much the same way as the Adeptus Astartes variant, and intended for much the same purpose, rapid response planetary assault force deployment and orbital offensive support. Ulante stood at its lean, brutal lines and fearsome armaments with an admiring eye while the naval officer in him couldn't help assessing the lawkeeper ship's likely capabilities and comparing them to those of his own vessel. The Arbites cruiser was smaller and faster than the Navy warship, more heavily armoured and packed more of an offensive punch, but the Macarius was a long-range patrol vessel designed for extended independent operation and had a wide variety of offensive and defensive capabilities. Your opinion... Mr. Elante. Elante did not turn at the sound of his captain's voice, but continued to study the Arbites cruiser as it drifted past the Macarius's port side. A fine vessel, Captain. Its main bombardment cannon armament makes it dangerous to ships and planetary targets alike, while its unorthodox main engine array suggests that it will always have the advantage of speed and manoeuvrability. I almost pity those amongst the enemies of the Emperor who must face such a vessel in battle. But there was a tone to his captain's voice, which a stranger might mistake for angry sharpness. Elante, however, knew better. He turned, smiling, knowing what was expected of him next. But I believe that the Macarius would still be the victor in any one-to-one confrontation with it. Catching Semper's expectant look, he continued, although a fine vessel... It's still primarily a blockade runner and rock pounder, designed for dealing with orbital defence platforms and putting the fear of the Emperor into planet-based ground forces, not going up against a cruiser-class warship. I doubt that we could manoeuvre it into a position for a close-range torpedo strike, but its comparative lack of anti-ordnance defences for a vessel of its size would leave it highly vulnerable to attack from our bomber squadrons. Also, our greater reactor output, ability to absorb high crew casualties and superior weapon accuracy at long ranges, would be the telling factor in any extended battle. Semper nodded in approval, pleased with his second-in-command's shrewd assessment of the theoretical outcome of a battle between the two vessels. As always, Leoton Semper liked to keep his officers on their toes, 
If, sometimes, he made even veteran officers feel as if they were scholar progenium cadets standing before a particularly demanding and exacting preacher to Taurus taskmaster. And as always, Alante noted, the captain had ended his private rest period and reported for duty on the bridge long before he had been scheduled to, this time by some three hours. Frequently restless, the captain had been even more so since the conclusion of the Battle of Helia Free and their subsequent reassignment to the evacuation of Pilatus. Elante knew that something had clearly been troubling the master of the Mercarius. He was glad, then, to see his captain apparently in a lighter mood now. Semper stepped up to his customary informal command position, midway on the bridge's central nave, from where he could oversee the operations of the command deck crew. A junior watch officer handed him a data slate, saluting smartly as he did so. But Semper merely cleared his throat and looked to his second-in-command. Your report, Flag Lieutenant. The situation is much as it was, Captain. The final stage of the evacuation is proceeding, and transport vessels Aldemal, Baham, Branus, Haruna, Makiza, Orlando and Zavich have all signalled that they have completed cargo uploading and are ready to be underway. We expect the other transports to be at a similar state of readiness before the end of the current day cycle. In-system enemy activity. Dragonfells and our own attack craft patrols have reported two long-range contacts with enemy raider-class vessels, answered Ulante. Both contacts were in the vicinity of the gas giant belt. Both retreated from any further challenge, although elements of our Firedrake squadron are currently chasing down a third possible enemy contact. Semper grunted in a lack of surprise. They knew this game of old. The Macarius had spent an earlier part of the war protecting transport convoys from the wolf pack pirate fleets that preyed on the main Imperium shipping lanes. Like these enemy vessels, the pirate raider ships specialised in hit-and-run attacks, probing the convoy defences for signs of weakness, but retreating at the first sign of challenge from the vastly larger and more heavily armed Imperium warships. At present, it was reckoned that two, possibly even three, Chaos scout vessels had infiltrated the Bellatus system, advance heralds for the approaching planet-killer fleet. Mindful of this, the Imperial Navy ships had spread their strength out accordingly. The Graf Orluk and a sister lunar-class cruiser, the Borodino, were parked in close orbit above Bellatus, the transport fleet sheltering in the cover of their formidable combined firepower. The Drakenfels and a squadron of sword-class frigates restlessly prowled the system's outer reaches, searching for those elusive enemy scout ships, while the Macarius circulated in a wide, concentric orbit between the two Imperial detachments, launching bomber patrols in support of the Drakenfels' vigil and then looping back in system to offer frigate escort cover for the fleet of shuttles and cargo lifters, travelling endlessly back and forth between the planet's surface and the Imperial transports. So far, the operation was proceeding as planned, although the strain of offering near-constant attack craft support was starting to tell on the crews of the Macarius' Starhawk and Fury Interceptor squadrons. Our current on-board status? asked Semper. Satisfactory, replied his second-in-command. Magus Castaborus reports that the temporary battle damage repairs have been completed and tested to his satisfaction, pending full repair next time we make space dock. Elante paused. 
Semper instantly picking up on his lieutenant's hesitation. But there is a potential problem elsewhere, is there not, Mr. Orlante? Tell me what it is. Ship's surgeon Latario reports an outbreak of disease among several crew detachments. So far the outbreak has been exclusively confined to three of the lower decks. Semper frowned in displeasure. Outbreaks of disease and plague were far from uncommon aboard the vessels of the Imperial Navy, especially amongst the squalor and filth of a ship's lower decks. But he prided himself on running a clean and adequately disease-free ship. Does the ship's surgeon know the cause of the outbreak? Was it brought aboard by any of the replacement crew we picked up from the Tonnant? That's possible, sir. Most of the survivors from the Tonnant were assigned to replace our crew casualties suffered on those decks now affected by the outbreak, answered Ulante. What action do you wish to be taken? Quarantine the decks in question and send in armsmen squads to find and destroy any identified carriers of the disease, ordered Semper. Tell Lutario I expect a full report on the causes and symptoms of this outbreak as soon as possible. Ulante nodded in acknowledgement, just as a communications officer called out, signalling for the two flag officers' attention. Captain, the Graf Orlok has just put out a shuttle carrying Adept Huger of the Departmento Munitorum. They're requesting permission to dock with us, and Adept Huger instructs that he requires an immediate meeting with you. Uh, what orders? Ulante glanced at Semper. Seeing no trace now of the captain's earlier lighter mood, and imagining the orders that Semper would probably dearly wish to issue, if he could. Something along the lines of, armed defence turrets and open fire at will, would probably be close to the mark, mused Alante. Knowing his captain's strong dislike of rear echelon bureaucracy in general, and adept primus Ferdinand Huger, the Departmento Munitorum official responsible, for overseeing the evacuation in particular. Permission to dock granted, sighed Semper. Send out a fighter escort to bring our distinguished visitor safely to us. Mr. Alante, form up an honour guard to meet him at the shuttle bay and see to it that he is greeted with all the pomp and ceremony he expects. Find Commissar Kyogen and tell him to join us for a meeting in my private quarters. We look forward to hearing what the Honourable Adept has to tell us. The lead Starhawk in the bomber formation probed ahead with its surveyor senses, searching for traces of the target pattern of the retreating Chaos Raider craft. When last reported, it had been moving at speed, turning away to escape the threat of the marauding Lance batteries of the Drakenfels, and running for the cover of a nearby gas giant. Since that last contact, the enemy ship had vanished off their target screens, probably cutting its power emissions down to a minimum and drifting into the obscuring shelter of the planet's massive surveyor sensor shadow, or the cover offered amongst the debris of its orbital rings. The seven-strong Fire Drake Squadron. There had not yet been time to replace their losses suffered during the recent Battle of Helia III, were coming in on a widespread search in a choir formation. Forward surveyors boosted to maximum intensity, but they were now dangerously close to their full operational limit away from the Macarius. They must either find their target soon, the squadron leader knew, or turn back now if they hoped to make it back to the Macarius on their remaining fuel and oxygen reserves. 
Inside six other bomber cockpits, the pilots of Fire Drake Squadron partially maintain their current course and speed, one eye on the surveyor screens, the other on their fuel and oxygen supply indicators. And then, finally, the order came over the Comnet channel. Fire Drake to Squadron. Mission is null and void. Break off and return to carrier. In sequence, each Starhawk fired in turn, first its braking jets and then its manoeuvring thrusters, following the lead of the squadron commander's craft and bringing them all on a tight, sweeping turn away from the deep space edge of the Bellatus system and back towards their far-distant mother vessel. On board the Starhawks, navigator crewmen swiftly switched off or powered down their search surveyors, decreasing their craft's tell-tale energy signal outputs and increasing their chances of survival for the long and often danger-fraught journey back to the safety of the Macarius. Behind them, his vessel drifting inert amongst the rock and frozen ice flotsam of the orbital rings, the commander of the Chaos Infidel-class raider watched in only partial relief as the enemy bomber squadron turned away from its search and headed back in system towards their carrier vessel. He had been reasonably certain that his vessel's gun batteries and defence turret gunners could have destroyed the bombers had they come any closer. However, it was likely that the bombers would have been able to send back a warning to their mothership before they were destroyed, and the Chaos Commander was under strict orders to avoid detection by the enemy for as long as possible. For there was not just Chaos scout vessels at large in the Bellatus system, hanging on the fringes of the upper atmosphere of the looming gas giant behind the escort ship masked by the thick, drifting clouds of methane and hydrogen, and the massive electromagnetic storms that pulsed through them, was not just a full squadron of five more raiders, but also a capital vessel warship, the murder-class cruiser Charybdis. All of them had arrived in the Bellata system weeks ago, all of them emerging from the warp at a point far beyond the usual system's edge warp-jump beacons, and drifting slowly into the system on low power to evade detection by the Imperium patrols. All of them awaiting the arrival of the planet killer. All of them watching patiently as the followers of the false, weakling Emperor tried to defy the will of the Despoiler by rescuing what pitiful number of their own kind that they could from the doomed world. All upon Bellatus would die. None would escape. The Despoiler had so commanded. And soon, the lurking chaos flotilla would see to it that the War Master's wishes were fulfilled. Chapter 7 Heat, Darkness, Safety, Food These things the entity craved, these things it found in abundance in this, its new home. Its previous home, the living vessel in which it had been transported into these metal bowels of its fine new home, lay discarded somewhere in the darkness behind it. Now barely recognisable as anything once living, the rotting, desiccated remains of its host body had provided it with much-needed nourishment in the first few days after its birth. It remembered those days only indistinctly now, the host had found a good berthing place, a dark and seldom visited blind alley amongst the maze of pipes and low-ceilinged metal maintenance passageways. 
hiding itself behind a cluster of hissing steam pipes, the host had entered the final stages of its glorious gestation transformation, deliberately chewing through its own tongue early in the process to stifle its cries of pain. Afterwards, when it had finally died, the heat and moisture from the steam pipes had quickly brought its body to bloated fruition, making it all the easier for the entity which had grown inside it to rip its way out through the malleable and rot-ripened flesh. The entity had begun absorbing the remains of its host into itself, clothing itself in the suitably reformed flesh of its parent. It was then, as it delicately picked its way through the memory morsels contained within its host's decaying brain matter, seeking out useful knowledge of its new home, that it discovered its own name, Plague Bearer. The entity liked the name. It gave it an identity. It told it what the purpose of its existence was. Thus enlightened, it set about enacting that purpose. Although it had lived all of its short life to date, alone in the darkness, it knew it was surrounded by other fleshy vessels, similar to the one that had birthed it. As well as its name, it had inherited from the mind of its dead host an overwhelming awareness of the need to hide itself, and so it went about its work cautiously and carefully, taking pains never to be discovered or reveal itself. It laid its spore in the cramped spaces of air ducts, knowing that the currents would circulate the stuff to areas far distant from where it had been planted. It left traces of itself at passage junctions and other places where many of its prey often passed by. It knew the places where the prey kept their food and water supplies, and it knew that if it could get into these places, then it could spread its plague seed at a far greater rate. However, it knew also that such places were guarded, and that to reveal itself to its prey at this early stage would mean disaster. Still, the time would come for such a move, but it would first have to multiply, and to do that, it would need more nourishment, more food. Light and noise from along the passageway alerted it to the presence of danger. It moved fast, jumping upwards and oozing between two power conduit pipes that ran along the ceiling of the passage. It watched trembling with fear inherited from its weakling parent host as two of the prey creatures came along the passage towards it. They were armed with weapons. The bright lights in their hands were lux lamps and the strange coverings on their faces were rebreather masks. The memory morsels absorbed from its host brain told it. They scanned their light beams ahead of them along the passageway and into every nook and recess as they came to them. A thrill of fear ran through the entity. It had been cautious in everything it did, but it knew that some of the prey had already been successfully infected by its plague seed. Had its existence been discovered? Were they now actively hunting it? They passed beneath it, one of them by chance swinging its light beam up to peer into the maze of overhead pipes. The entity hiding there reacted with an instinct inherited not from its host parent, but from something far greater and more terrible. It lashed down with one dripping claw hand, catching the prey under the jaw and sinking bony talons deep into the flesh of its throat. One jerk of its arm and the prey's jaw and much of its face came away in the entity's hand. The prey fell backwards, its death throw spasms discharging the weapon still gripped in its hands. It was the first gunshot that the entity had ever heard, shocking its delicate and still nascent senses. Taking fright, it oozed quickly down out of its hiding place, dropping the body of its first kill. 
The other prey was making muffled screaming noises from within the mask it wore over its face, but still took the entity by surprise by bringing its own weapon up to bear and firing it at point-blank range into the entity's body. The entity felt a scattering of hot metal rip through the flesh of its body, and then felt that same flesh reform and re-knit over the bloodless wounds. There was none of the sensation that its host's dead mind would have identified as pain. The entity surged forward, choking off the prey's screams with a tentacle-transformed hand that wormed its way down the creature's throat. With its other hand, it punched through the prey's chest and pulled out its heart. The entity seethed with anger at the false instincts that it had inherited from its host. If it had known that the prey creatures were so easy to kill, it would never have been so afraid of them in the first place. Working quickly, it gathered up the remains of its prey and dragged them off into the darkness. Now it had the flesh nourishment it needed to grow, to thrive, to multiply. Ref Zane awoke suddenly from a troubled sleep. For a few seconds, he did not know where he was, mistaking the night-cycle dimmed gloom of the quarters he shared with four Fury Interceptor pilots and navigators for his old novice cell back on Sacra Evangelista. He shook his head in an effort to dispel the momentary confusion cast over his mind by lack of sleep and too many extended flight missions in the last few days. He slipped out of his bunk, going to the small devotional shrine that he maintained beside his personal locker. From nearby, one of the others, Zane thought it sounded like Lutjens, Altamere's irritatingly over-Geralia's navigator, thrashed in his bunk and mumbled incoherently to himself before lying still again. They sense it too, Zane thought to himself. Even under the effects of the narco-seds, taken by most off-duty attack craft pilots to counter the effects of the stims pumped into their bodies during flight missions, the other sleepers in the room also sensed whatever it was that had awakened Zane from his sleep. He knelt before the shrine, studying the small icon images that he had placed there. The three holy faces of the Emperor, mortal, ascendant and divine. The Blessed Helena of the Adeptus Sororitas, martyred and defiled by heretic unbelievers, but now revered as one of the greatest and most holy defenders of the imperial faith. Zane prayed to her most of all, seeking answers to the growing disquiet within him. Something was wrong, he realised. There was danger close at hand. Perhaps it was out there in the void, or down on the surface of the planet. Or, perhaps, even closer than that, perhaps even on the Macarius itself. Something was definitely wrong. Chapter 8 The shuttle fell away from the carrier ship, the waiting trio of fury fighters breaking off from their holding pattern and peeling away to take up protective positions around the shuttle. Together, the formation of Imperial craft descended from orbit to the surface of the planet below. Inside the titanium shell of the passenger capsule, through one of the capsule's small, Armoured glass-steel windows, Semper looked back to see the familiar whole shape of the Macarius as it slowly receded from view. It had been months since he had left his ship, months more even since he had made planetfall anywhere, and he took this rare opportunity to study the lines and shape of the vessel he commanded. At its front, the familiar armoured beak 
Common to most Imperial cruisers, many metres thick and composed of strengthened adamantium, the toughest material known to human science. At its rear were the massive array of plasma drive engines, which, together with the generarium reactors and arcane technology of the vessel's warp drive, made up over a third of the Macarius's mass. In between these two points was the main body of the ship, dozens of decks of gun batteries and magazine arsenals, flight bays and workshops, cargo holds and quartermaster stores, dormitories and infirmaries, chapel shrines and prison brigs. Semper's eye roamed over the sheer sides of the ship's hull, seeing the often ancient scars of battle that pitted its armoured flanks, evidence of the venerable warship's long and honourable record of service to the Emperor. No two Imperium vessels, even those of the same class, were identical. Centuries, sometimes even millennia, of modifications and repairs, using whatever local construction methods and materials were available in any of the countless different orbital repair yards and forge world dry docks maintained throughout the Imperium sort of that. But all followed broadly similar classic lines of design and purpose. Still, Semper was certain that even if the entire armed might of Battlefleet Obscurus itself were lined up before him, he would be able to invariably and instinctively pick out his own vessel at a glance. So well did he know its individual lines and signature details. More than 10,000 souls, from Semper himself to the lowliest convict rating or servitor drone, lived within its armoured hull. More than 10,000. A figure greater than the fighting complement of the largest Imperial Guard regiment. And many of that 10,000-plus doubled as fighting troops, trained to take part in the bloody close-quarter boarding assaults that were a frequent part of space warfare. Indeed, the captain of an Imperial Navy warship commanded destructive capabilities undreamt of by any mere Imperial Guard commander. Its whole-side batteries could raise whole cities with sustained orbital bombardments. Its attack craft, it carried more than a hundred of them, it could reach across star systems to strike at enemy targets, while its warp engines carried it across the vast interstellar gulfs to wherever the Emperor's enemies might be. There was even space within its cargo holds and crew compartments to carry thousands of extra troops, as much as a full Imperial Guard infantry regiment, if need be, from one war zone to another and with greater speed and safety than any slow and vulnerable troop transport vessel. No other Imperial commander had such power at their disposal. No other Imperial commander was entrusted with such a singular instrument of awesome destruction than the master of an Imperial warship. Like having one foot on the Golden Throne were the Traditional, only half-joking words that the captains of the Imperial Navy murmured in private and strictly only amongst themselves to describe the awesome power and authority at their direct command. Which, Leotin Semper ruefully told himself, made his own current situation of impotent anger all the more galling and difficult to bear. He remembered the words of Yuga when the Departmento Munitorum official arrived aboard the Macarius. I have been in communication with the Governor Regent of Bellatis. As an adept civitas of planetary overlord rank, he is accorded the right to be given personal safe escort by the ranking member of the Naval Evacuation Force. 
the Governor-Regent has so informed me that he wishes to claim this right. Captain Ramus of the Drakenfels is the highest-ranking ship's captain belonging to the evacuation escort force. However, for practical reasons involving Captain Ramus's battle-wound disabilities, as well as other factors, Yuga had paused here, flushing slightly, and Semper had almost smiled as he imagined the idea of the highly irascible and plain-speaking master of the Drakenfels being called upon to carry out any kind of delicate diplomatic duty. As I said, there are factors which regrettably make Captain Ramus unable to carry out this task. Therefore, the duty falls to the next ranking officer in the chain of command, which would be you, Captain Semper. There had been an uncomfortable silence in the captain's private quarters as all three senior officers present, Semper, Ulante and Commissar Kyogen, stared in anger and unapologetic disbelief at the Munitorum official. Semper, not trusting himself to speak, glanced expectantly at Ulante. The young aristocratic officer raised amongst the great noble houses inhabiting the spire peaks of the Necromundan hives and more familiar with the rituals of diplomatic speaking took his cue. Honoured adept Yuga, he had said, we remain at full alert and will do so until we are safely underway in the warp and with this emperor forsaken world far behind us. We are running round-the-clock attack craft missions, and we are currently overseeing the final preparations for the evacuation fleet's imminent departure. There are already several enemy scout vessels probably in hiding within this system, and at any moment a full enemy fleet together with their new and supposedly invincible weapons platform may emerge from the warp to attack us. Elante paused, looking directly at Hyuga, his voice taking on a harder and more scathing tone. And now, in the midst of all this, you come to tell us that Captain Semper must abandon his command responsibilities and instead take part in some needless, trivial etiquette, merely to pander to the whims of some local planetary dignitary. Hugo had glanced at Alante, drawing himself up to his full, if unimpressive, height. A small, balding and vainglorious man. Ayuga's responsibilities as an official of the Departmento Munitorum were the organisation and equipping of the Imperium's armed forces. Members of this powerful wing of the Adeptus Administratum usually either wore adepts' robes, or, since many of the most senior officials belonged to the great Imperium noble houses, a garb appropriate to their high-born social rank. Ayuga, however, was dressed in a gaudy, custom-tailored military uniform, which all three naval officers had suspected he had probably designed himself. Rank pips on the over-braided collar and shoulder epaulets signified that the bureaucrat adept's position carried with it the honorary rank of lieutenant colonel within the Imperial Guard, while his uniform breast was ablaze with ribbons and decorations, none of which any of the naval men recognised, all of them probably awarded for deeds performed far from any battlefield. The House of Sarrow has served the Emperor well for centuries, Hyuga had said. It is only fitting that they receive their due salute in accordance with Imperial custom, as they prepare to give up their faithful custodianship of one of the Emperor's subject possessions. 
I have consulted with the Arbites commander on Bellatus, and it is his opinion, too, that we carry out this duty in the interests of proper imperial protocol. Very well, Semper had said, already calculating how much time this pointless and unnecessarily risky diversion from his real duties would take. Mr. Alante, you have the bridge, at least until the honoured adept and I return from our trip to the planet's surface. You misunderstand, Captain. Hayuga had smiled apologetically. My own duties take me back to the Graf Orlock as soon as I have finished here. I still have many details to attend to before the evacuation can be counted as completed. I am afraid that won't be possible. This time it had been Semper's turn to smile, if only in feigned apology. This vessel is currently under quarantine, and I cannot allow you to leave it to return to another Imperial Navy ship. I'm sure that a vessel commander as prudent and cautious as Captain von Blocker would not wish to risk the danger of bringing any contagion aboard his ship. Quarantine? Contagion? Hyuga had stammered, too taken by surprise to pick up on Semper's subtly scathing reference to von Blocker's well-known reputation for an overcaution which, in the opinion of many of his brother captains, verged on outright cowardice. An outbreak of plague below decks. Mr. Olante was just informing me of the problem as you came aboard. Indeed, Olante had said, smoothly picking up his captain's intent. A somewhat virulent strain, one that has so far defied our ship's surgeon's efforts to fully contain it. While the risk of infection to you so far is small, the longer you stay aboard the Macarius, the greater the risk must become. And since Navy quarantine regulations forbid you returning to the Graf Orlock, then it would be to your advantage to accompany me to the surface of Pilatus, Semper had finished. Not only would I have the honour of accompanying the Governor Regent back to orbit, but I would have the privilege and pleasure of knowing that I was also safeguarding your personal well-being into the bargain. The colour visibly drained from the bureaucrat's face at the thought of setting foot on the surface of the doomed and chaos-engulfed world below. Looking around, his panicked gaze fixed on the imposing and so far silent figure of Kyogen. Commissar! he had bleated. This is outrageous. I demand at once that you see to it that I am given safe escort off this ship and back to the Graf Orlock. Kyogen. Towering over the smaller man, looked down in contempt at the bureaucrat, casting a glance over Hyuga's rows of administratum decorations. The Order of the Gothic Star, Battlefleet Gothic's highest award for valour, hung from his uniform breast, and Semper too wore the same decoration. Neither man wore the medal for reasons of vain pride, merely a simple statement of the personal authority by which they expected their commands to be carried out by other, lesser servants of the Emperor. There is an outbreak of disease, and naval regulations are quite explicit on such matters. It is my duty to see that those regulations are kept, too, by force, if necessary. Kyogen stepped forward, leaning down into Hayuga's face. Better to take your chances with the captain, honoured adept. Who knows? Perhaps you may be able to award yourself a real battle decoration when you return. Semper glanced up, seeing the still white-faced bureaucrat sitting strapped into an acceleration harness 
across on the other side of the spacious passenger capsule. Ayuga's two scribe adept assistants sat behind him, both of them looking just as nervous as their master. The temperature inside the cabin was increasingly noticeable, and the entire shuttle bucked and shuddered violently on its high-speed descent down the gravity well and into Bellatus's atmosphere. All three administratum officials looked as if they thought that the shuttle would tear apart around them any second. Probably more used to slow cruising descents aboard luxury administratum craft than a high-speed navy shuttle drop into a war zone, thought Semper. Aside from Semper and the Departmento Munitorum officials, there were four other occupants of the passenger cabin, all of them dressed in dark grey-blue uniforms featuring the blue rank sashes of a Navy petty officer. Three of them were petty officer class armsmen, Semper's familiar bodyguard retinue, who accompanied the captain wherever he went on the Mercurius. Semper often wondered which of these dependable but dull-witted watchdogs was Kyogen's secret informer. Reporting back to the ship's commissar on the captain's every move and utterance. Probably Ran, the least dull-witted of them, Semper thought. Or possibly even all three. Whichever it was, all three were united in purpose now, staring in sullen and hostile suspicion at the forefigure slouched in the row of seats across from them. His muscle-bound form, squeezed into a petty officer's uniform, Stranovar Underhiver and Lubyanka Prison Gang tattoo markings clearly visible on the exposed parts of his skin and his wrists and neck and with the faint but unmistakable aroma of chewed taji root permeating the air around him. Maxim Barossa cut a strange and distinct figure from the other occupants of the shuttle. Semper was still unsure why at the last moment he had relented to his second-in-command's urgings and decided to take the flag lieutenant's personal bodyguard with him, in addition to his own usual armsman protectors. The man was a savage thug, little better than the scum of the convict work gangs that carried out many of the more brutal and menial labour tasks aboard the Macarius. Emperor alone knew how he ever made the rank of petty officer, but there was a predatory danger an intelligence about him that made Semper suspect that Barossa was, as Alante had suggested, a good man to have on your side. One of those rare breed of born survivors who always seem to find a way out of even the most extreme situations, and if you were lucky and stayed close by him, perhaps might even take you with him while he was about it. Semper turned his attention to the view out of the small cabin porthole. They were deep within the planetary atmosphere now, passing through the thick cloud layer that covered much of Bellatus's equator regions during the planet's apparently frequent monsoon seasons. Little to nothing was visible for the next few minutes, and then suddenly they dropped through the bottom of the cloud ceiling, and the panoply of Bellatus's capital city of Medina was spread out beneath them. Semper saw neatly laid out hab zones and commerce districts built in a radial pattern spreading out from the central rocky spire of what must be the planetary governor's palace. Wide avenues bisected and divided each civic district, but Semper could clearly see the columns of refugees which choked those central thoroughfares and the barricades and makeshift defence walls that had been placed across many of them to stem the human tide flocking into the stricken city. Even from this height, Semper could discern the tell-tale swirling patterns of human melee, signifying large-scale combat around those barricades. Elsewhere, 
The scars of anarchy and civil war were evident across the face of the city. Fires burned out of control everywhere. Several districts were bombed out ruins. Most of the bridges across the wide river dividing the city had been destroyed, and to the north, a large industrial area was ablaze, casting a pall of poisonous black vapour across that entire quarter of the city and the suburbs and countryside beyond. Looking at the evident chaos and destruction that had engulfed not only Medina, but this entire world, Semper felt secret despair rising up within him once more. Despair at the course of the war, at the odds against them, and most secretly of all, at the way it was being conducted by the Imperium forces. After the victory at Helios system, when the Macarius and its sister ships had repulsed the invasion of Helia III, he had dared to hope that the Imperium was at last going on the offensives, striking back at the Chaos forces rather than merely holding the line against them. It had been Semper's recommendation that the remnants of the retreating Chaos Warfleet be pursued into the warp and ruthlessly hunted down and destroyed before they could regroup to form the nucleus of another invasion armada. Instead, the Macarius and several of the other ships had been ordered to take part in the evacuation of Bellatus, and now, rather than even merely trying to hold the line against the enemy advance, it seemed to be Battlefleet Command's intention to abandon entire worlds to the wrath of the despoiler. Semper and several of his fellow captains had, in private, railed against this policy, arguing that rather than protecting a planet-wide evacuation effort, they should be forming up into battle lines to meet the arrival of the planet-killer fleet. With whatever support could be spared from other battle groups, they could mount an effective defence of the Bellatus system, if not defeating and destroying the planet-killer fleet, then at least driving it back into the warp. The important thing, they argued, was to capitalise on the impetus of the victory at Helia and show the enemy that the forces of his Divine Majesty's navy stood ready to meet them wherever and whenever necessary. All the Gothic sector lived in fear that one day the shadow of the planet killer would fall upon their world. The effects on Imperial morale would be incalculable. Semper and a few brave others argued if it could be shown that the despoiler's terror weapon was not invincible, that the duty and purpose of the ships of Battlefleet Gothic to protect every Imperial world within the Gothic sector still counted for something. In all respects, their every argument had been overruled. There were not sufficient ships to spare to mount a concentrated counter-attack effort against the heavily armed planet-killer fleet, they were told. In time, they were told, the planet-killer would be dealt with, but that time was not yet ready. And, in the meantime, Semper thought bitterly to himself, the worlds of the Gothic sector would have to endure taking part in some sick lottery the rules of which only the strategy planners of Battlefleet Command in Port Moor seemed to understand. Some, like Helia, would be spared, while others, such as Bellatis, would be sacrificed wholesale, vital fleet resources that could be used to defend them, instead expanded on a cowardly and selective evacuation that, in Semper's eyes, was tantamount to betrayal of the Emperor's subjects and surrender to their enemies. How many more worlds do we sacrifice, he asked himself. How many more millions or billions do we betray before we turn and fight? The shuttle suddenly lurched violently, banking steeply in the midst of its continued descent over the city. 
Semper saw bright shards of laser fire and tracer trails streak past the shuttle's wingtip, realising that they were coming under fire from ground-based anti-aircraft batteries. The shuttle lurched again, rolling 90 degrees to port and causing one of the scribe adepts to cry out in fear as the pilot took extreme evasive manoeuvres to keep his craft out of the ground gunner's sights. The pilot was Milos Kaparian, Semper Nu. Alante had instructed Remus Nida to assign his best flight crew to man the shuttlecraft that would carry their captain to the planet's surface and back, and the Macarius's chief ordnance officer had obliged with the commander and crew of the lead bomber from the best of his Starhawk squadrons. Between Alante's personal thug and the commander of Nemesis Squadron, Semper thought, his second-in-command could hardly be accused of not taking adequate precautions to protect the life of his captain. From beyond the shuttle cabin came the roar of thrusted jets as one of the Fury escorts peeled away, darting down towards the source of the ground fire. A variant of the normal deep space fighter Fury design, and specially adapted for planetary atmosphere operation, it glided in across the rooftops of the burning city, zeroing in on its target. Small arms fire, near useless at this range, and unable to penetrate the fighter's armour, crackled up from the hidden infantry positions on the ground. The Fury suddenly pulled up, its pilot hitting its lifter jets as he seeded the ruins below with high-explosive incendiary death released from the dual bomb rack slung beneath its wings. The Fury surged back upwards, pursued by a column of phosphor and fire that expanded rapidly to devour over two square kilometres of buildings and ruins, scouring them clean of all human life. After that, there was no more ground fire directed at the shuttle and its escorts as they made their final approach on the Governor Regent's palace. In the shuttle's cockpit, Caparian cut their speed as they approached the shimmering energy barrier of the structure's defence shield. The three Furies passed close by, rolling over and dipping their wingtips in a traditional Navy pilot's farewell, before arcing upwards on full engine boosters as they commenced their long, arduous climb back up into space orbit. There was a slight shudder of impact as the shuttle passed through the field of the energy barrier, sending crackling ribbons of electromagnetic lightning dancing along the craft's hull and wing surfaces, and then it was through. Caparian brought it in on manoeuvring jets, guiding it towards and then through a beckoning open cave mouth set into the mountainous palace rock, and then settled it gently down on the metal-decked landing bay within. Blast suit protected ground crew and servitor slaves ran forward to secure coolant feeds to its overcharged power systems, heedless of fiery backwash from the shuttle's landing thrusters. There was a minute's pause as Caparian and his crew shut down the craft's flight systems, while enormous extractor fans within the bay dispersed the heat and vapours expelled by the shuttle's now silent engines, and then the main landing ramp opened and lowered itself to the deck. Semper's bodyguard were first to descend, stamping their boots noisily on the ramp's metal surface and glancing suspiciously around them. Semper came next, Maxim instinctively falling into step behind, and Hyuga and his two adepts following. Semper paused on the foot of the ramp, aware after so long aboard the Macarius 
of the scent of air not filtered a thousand times through a ship's atmosphere recycling plant, and sensing that traditional feeling of physical strangeness as his body adjusted to the subtly different and slightly higher gravity force of this world rather than that of Macarius' own artificial gravity systems. In time, he knew, would come the momentary sensation of agoraphobic fear when, after being used for so long to being enclosed by grey bulkhead walls and metal decking and ceiling, he stood, for the first time in many months, beneath open sky. Not that he planned on being on this world long enough for that to happen, he reminded himself. Semper stood to attention as an authoritative and daunting figure in black carapace armour and visored helm strode forward to meet him. Semper saluted formally, clicking his booted heels together, navy-style, as he did so. Leotin Semper, his Divine Majesty's ship Lord Solar Macarius. Byzantine, Marshal Primus Adeptus Arbites, the figure answered, returning the salute and then taking the navy man by surprise, by offering a gauntleted hand in welcome. "'My apologies, Captain Semper,' said the arbitrator, "'but it is because of me that you were summoned here on this fool's errand. "'What do you say we get this charade over with as quickly and painlessly as we can?' Chapter 9 Cuisan kicked aside the corpse of a Bellatis Planetary Defence Force trooper as he stepped through the blasted open doors of the underground missile silo. The defenders of this silo, and the others hidden amongst the slopes and valleys of these hills, had fought hard, but Khoisan had been unstinting in his attack, throwing forward wave after wave of cultist attackers. He had personally led the principal attack, PDF deserters leading him and his troops on secret back routes through the labyrinth of defence tunnels that honeycombed the area to mount a surprise assault on the main command bunker. The bunker had fallen quickly. The slaughter inside its rock-creek passages and chambers had been appalling. Coyson remembered with a smile how the hand-picked force of his most fanatical followers had fallen with wild abandon on the unprepared defenders, and the other satellite silos and bunkers had succumbed in quick succession. Seizing control of the Defence Network's central wirenet communication systems, and piping through to the other bunkers the screams and shrieks of those unfortunate enough to be taken alive during the attack on the command bunker, had, thought the Chaos Champion, been a masterstroke in demoralising cunning. Khoisan had arrived on Bellatus over a year ago, coming to the world via the secret and hidden routes known only to the most arcane followers of the Gods of Chaos. At first he did not know what his purpose was, only that the currents of the warp and the will of the dark things that dwelled within it had drawn him here, but he had immediately set to work. He had formed the world's scattered groups of Chaos followers into an organised network of underground cells, terror groups ready to strike at the heart of the enemy's resources. He had reached out and found the weak and corruptible within the ranks of the great and good of Bellatus, turning a few of the most vital-placed and easily malleable to the cause of chaos. Under his direction, they had spread the secret gospel of the powers of the warp amongst those beneath them. In short, he had prepared the way, and now the forces of the warp had made manifest their divine intent for this world and for their servant, Khoisan the Faceless. The planet killer was on its way, 
all upon Bilatus would die, but their deaths would provide the motivating psychic energy to elevate Khoisan to his final reward. He would ride on the wings of the psychic death scream of this world's inhabitants, allowing it to carry him up into the far reaches of the warp, where he would be gloriously reborn as one of the greatest and most powerful servants of the gods of chaos, as a demon prince of chaos. Khoisan staggered, feeling the flesh beneath his rune-inscribed power armour split and convulse, feeling his chaos-changed innards flex and twist into even stranger new forms and purposes. With an effort he concentrated, trying to bring his rebellious physical form back under control. The cowl of featureless skin that covered the portion of his skull where his face should have been creating semi-formed flashes of myriad other, often horrific, flesh masks that the champion had worn over his millennia of service to the cause of chaos. Coison could pass for a normal human when it suited him. The ability to control his shifting flesh forms was a boon granted by his devotion to Lord Zench, the changer of the ways, but most of the time it suited him to maintain this faceless facade. "'Master!' called out one of his cultist bodyguards, moving forward to help him and then retreating back in terror, as that aspect of the blood god which the Chaos Champion had taken into himself momentarily manifested itself, Khoisan's missing features changing into the snarling, bestial mask of a demon servant of corn. Khoisan leant against the walkway's rail as he struggled to regain control of himself, his servants standing back in weary caution, the final physical changes heralding his ascension to the rank of Demon Prince were coming, and his body was already starting to react in anticipation of its imminent rebirth and transformation. There would be pain, Khoisan knew, as there had been on those other occasions when his body had changed to manifest those marks of chaos that were signs of his master's favours. But it would be as nothing in comparison to the almost limitless power that would soon be his. Khoisan beckoned one of his cultist lieutenants forward. In his previous life, just two months ago, the man had been a prosperous merchant from one of the industrial combines that dominated Bellatus's most northerly continent. Now he was a devoted follower of Chaos, who had used his position to smuggle thousands of cultists posing as migrant workers into Medina, arming them with weapons manufactured in his combines workshops stockpiled in his commercial warehouses throughout the city. Another faithful servant, thought Khoisan. Another fool who thinks I will save him from the despoiler's weapon. Another sacrifice to aid my elevation to demonhood. Now the preparations complete, growled Khoisan, his voice still thick with the last few lingering traces of the cornate demon that had briefly surfaced from inside him. Almost, master. The defence laser batteries are secured under our control and ready to fire. And the missiles, asked the Chaos Champion. The arming codes provided by our agents in the Governor's Palace have proved to be most satisfactory. Six of them here, and have a ten in the other silos. More than enough for our purposes. They are being refuelled and will be ready to launch in less than an hour. See to it, ordered Khoisan, 
The cultist adept bowed and retired to carry out his master's instructions. Khoisan moved to the edge of the walkway, looking down at the activity in the gallery below. On each side of the walkway stood the black metal towers of three giant orbital missiles of a similar type to the torpedo missiles used by the accursed vessels of the Imperial Navy. Cultists and tech-adept deserters from the Planetary Defence Force worked on them from the floors of the launch shaft bays, refuelling them and prepping them for launch. Other cultists swarmed up the gantry scaffolding that held the missiles in their launch cradles, carrying out the no less vital task of daubing them with chaos runes and sigils, reconsecrating these weapons of the Imperium to the service of the powers of the warp. More than enough for our purpose, thought Khoisan, knowing that within the hour these powerful weapons, intended to defend Bellatus from orbital attack by enemy vessels, would be thundering their way towards a very different kind of target. By that time, of course, he would be far from here. After the initial shock of the attack, the wrath of the orbiting Imperial warships would be swift and summary, and the reinforced rock-creep walls of these underground silos, and the hundred metres of rock and soil above their heads, would offer little protection from sustained bombardment from the gun batteries of a capital-class warship. Khoisan turned away, signalling to his bodyguard that it was time to return to the Gravhopper waiting to take him to Medina. He took one last look at the scurrying activity around the giant deadly missiles, seeing no difference between the still-living cultists working there and the corpses strewn at his feet. To the faceless one, they were all the same. All sacrifices, all additions to the pyre of corpses, which he must scale on his ascent to demonhood. And there we have the latest part of this little adventure we're on, just so you know. The second novel has arrived, the the sequel to this. There's two books. Uh, so, yeah, that's going to come at some point. Uh, maybe not straight away, but we'll see at some point. <coughs> oh, God, I burped. The amount of burps I have to cut out of this, because I have to drink while I'm doing it to keep my mouth from going dry so I can talk. So then I burp a lot. Anyway, I cut them all out, mostly. But, uh, yeah, anyway... Thanks for watching. I hope you are enjoying this. Uh, thank you for your continued support. If you would like to support the channel, and you're not already, like these fine gentlemen are, whose names are going by, and to you guys, thank you ever so much. It means the world. Uh, please do consider becoming a YouTube channel member uh, by clicking the, the join button below, or on Patreon if you like, or just look in the description. There's various different means you can support uh, the channel if you like. But please, if you can't do that, and let's face it, I understand. <laughs> if you can't do that, then please do like the video at least and subscribe if you're not subscribed. And let me know in the comments what you think. These things all help the channel. I really appreciate it. I'll be back again with more stuff soon. And again, thank you to everybody who's supporting the channel. Your name's going by here. Honestly, means the world. Really, really, really helps. And uh, you've got my eternal gratitude. And uh, I'll be back again with more stuff soon. It's probably going to be about four parts. There's probably four parts. There's at least three, maybe four. We'll see how things pan out. But uh, at least three more parts to go of about like an hour or so. So, uh, yeah, they're coming regularly soon. Boom, boom. We got through this quick. It's gone really quick, I think. Anyway, I'll see you later. Bye-bye.